seats, we'll just make sure that you know where we're heading. And I think we'll have enough time to ask some questions if you want to about the things that I talk about. So our intention in this time is to, as the outline says, do a survey of the high points of redemptive history here. And I list the ones that I could look at. I'll probably leave some of those out because it it would take us too long to, to look at all of those and then draw some implications for missions. So the way I'm approaching this is probably a little different than than the way uh, Ralph Winter or somebody might approach it, because I think, I've, as I've heard others develop this first talk on missionary God, especially people like Don Richardson, uh, they'd start, you know, with the 2,000-year connection, Genesis 12:3, and so on. And I'm just going behind that to the ultimate goal of God's mission in the world, namely to uphold and display his glory for the enjoyment of his redeemed people from every people, tribe, and tongue, and nation. Maybe I should tell you my assumption here. Um, This word enjoyment is a very operative and very important word linking with this word glory for me. I call and have called my theology Christian hedonism, H-E-D-O-N-I-S-M, Christian hedonism. And and the book back there, uh, Desiring God, is an unpacking of that phrase. And everything I've ever written is an attempt to defend the phrase that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's my summary of my life calling. God is most glorified in us. When we are most satisfied in him, which means that if God's glory, I mean, God's motive or goal is to display his glory, to make it look really as good as it is, to magnify it. He cannot be indifferent to whether it's enjoyed. Because the enjoyment of it magnifies it. If you are offered a gift and you dutifully accept it, you don't glorify that gift as much as if you joyfully accept it. And so the the joyful response to God, the delighting in God, is essential to his being glorified in the world. Which means you are a blasphemer. If you renounce joy as the goal of your life. Because joy is that by which God is honored and glorified in you. You must make it your aim to pursue the fullest possible joy. Which according to. Psalm 1611 is found where? Thou dost show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. So now we know where it's found. In God's presence, at God's right hand, because God is our exceeding great reward. Abraham said. I'm a Christian hedonist. Meaning I am devoted with all the energy that lies within me 
to being as happy as I can be for as long as I can be. And anybody that offers me a joy that gives me about 95% happiness for about 800 years, I will say no thank you. I want 100% forever, or I will not buy your deal. And I know where it's found, because the Bible tells me where it's found. It's found in God. For God to hear that is mightily honored. When you get to heaven, and he says, "Um, why should I let you in here? E.E. says, you should say, because I trusted Jesus. Let's do a little bit of unpacking of that. Because I think trust involves loving. And loving involves delighting. Paul said at the end of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, second to last verse, Let everyone who does not love the Lord be accursed. Which means faith, which we believe is that alone which justifies, must include love. Because you're cursed if you don't love him. And nobody who's justified is cursed. And we're justified by faith. So faith must include love. We sling around these words, you know, believe in Jesus or have trust. And we think it's simple like that. Well, I know living in Minneapolis, every drunk on the street trusts Jesus. Every prostitute trusts Jesus. I've never talked to a person on the street. I live in Phillips neighborhood, and I can't get anybody to say they don't believe in Jesus. I don't care how they're living. So that language, has it's forced me to get inside the Bible and dig and ask, Jesus, what do you mean? What do you expect from people? By trust or belief. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Believing means coming to Jesus such that you don't thirst anymore for anything but him. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. So I'm on a quest in missions and in the city here tonight to awaken deeper satisfaction in the glory of God. Precisely because God is more glorified in you when that satisfaction arises to him. If you go about your mission or your church work in a kind of willpower, dutiful way, God will not be as honored by your life as if you... Rejoice in Him. Delight in Him. Pursue joy in Him. So these are not throwaway words here. These are carefully chosen. And all I'm going to do is put text after text now up to show that God is radically God-centered. And when He seeks your enjoyment of His glory, He does that because His glory shines more brightly in your joy than in your duty. Let's start with creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all 
the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So here's the beginning of God's pursuit of God's glory in creation. What does that mean in his own image? It is a sad thing to me that in our very man-centered day, the concept of the image of God is most commonly talked about as a warrant for how wonderful we are. Rather than how wonderful God is. There's something fundamentally skewed about that. For this reason. Images are created to image. What they are images of. That's simple. Images are created to image forth. What they are images of. That's why images exist. Lenin, Abraham Lincoln, images, statues. They're just, they're not, they are intended to image forth a reality. You are in the image of God, quite unlike a frog and a toad and a horse, for a main reason. To image forth God. Therefore, the concept of the image of God should draw all attention to God. To the glory of God. That's what images are for. Getting attention for that which they image. But, sin entered into the world. And I'll draw it like this. I could act it out maybe, but I'll I'll try to draw it. If we are like reflectors or mirrors at a 45 degree angle like this, God's glory is there, Eve is here, Adam is here, let's just take that little paradigm of humanity, and the intention of this imaging reality here created in his uniqueness is for the glory of God to land And bounce off to her so that she sees Adam and loves God. Let your light so shine before men that they might see that and give glory to God. That's, in other words, recover the image. Live out the image so that people see your good deeds. The acting image and give glory to God, not you. And sin did this. It flipped itself like this. Now, on the back of a mirror is a black, I don't know what chemical that is, but you've seen them. And this light hits this and it's absorbed and stops right there. And instead of light being reflected off, a shadow is cast on the ground in the shape of this mirror. Eve and Adam... Look down at this shadow and they say, wow, that's something. And they fall in love with their shadow. 
That's sin. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You won't worship God anymore. You're going to worship yourself shadowed on the ground. And believe me, that shadow is very powerful. It can put people on the moon. It can find solutions to smallpox. It can create electricity and refrigeration, jet propulsion, CAT scans. The shadow of the image of God, that broken echo of who God really is in us, around us, is very attractive. And the whole human race worships it. We worship ourselves. And that's exactly the opposite of what God intended. So God began by putting a person, couple in the world to manifest his glory, to image forth who he is. And we fell from that. And then the Bible starts to give examples of what happens when you fall. For example, Now, the whole earth had one language and few words. And as men migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. That's an illustration in Genesis 11 of what becomes of the human race having fallen from looking to God as the source of satisfaction and joy and worship and beginning to look at themselves. They want to make a name for themselves, a city. They want to build themselves right up into heaven, exactly the opposite of what God meant for them to do. And so God now intervenes into the world with the choosing of Abraham. Now, these words in the choosing of Abraham or Abram might look different than what I've said, but check it. Genesis 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, this is one chapter later. After they had said, let us make a name for ourselves, God chooses one family to start a program And it says, now the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you great and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will blessing. So you'll be a blessing. So it may look to you that in making his name great, that doesn't sound like God is too concerned about God. Concerned about Abraham. To be great. But when you carry it through and study what was the point of this people, for example, Isaiah 49, 3, God says, you are my servant Israel. Speaking of Abraham's descendants and his people in whom I will be glorified. So, yes, he does make his name great. But the point of Abraham's greatness is to deflect that greatness to God. I will be glorified in you. How does he do it? He does it through faith. 
No distrust made him waver. No distrust. Distrust is a great dishonor to God. Trust is a great honor to God. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. It's a quotation from Romans 4. Giving glory to God. He grew strong in his faith, and I would say, thus, giving glory to God. Faith glorifies God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God is glorified as trustworthy when we believe him. So, when God chose Abraham and said, I'm going to make you great, he believed the promise. And in believing the promise, he became humble and let God work for him instead of those folks from the Tower of Babel who was trying to work their way into heaven. Let God work for him to make him great and thus reflecting off of every good thing that happened to Abraham is God's trustworthiness and God's goodness and God's power. Same thing with us. When we trust him to work for us, his greatness is magnified. If we presume to help him out with our self-initiative, then... We get the glory. So the calling of Israel is for the glory of God. Let's jump ahead to the Exodus. This is the pivotal moment in the history of this people as they were brought out of Egypt. Why did God rescue his people from Egypt? Why did he do that? I'm quoting here from Ezekiel 20, verses 5 to 9, and I'm just going to jump in right here instead of reading the whole thing. They're down in Egypt, and he says, well, maybe I'll start here. They rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did not every man cast away the detestable things from their eyes, which their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So they deserve to be punished. What happened? Then I thought I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them, in the midst of the land of Egypt, but he didn't carry that thought through. Instead, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they dwelt, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So if you ask, what was the bottom line motive for protecting this undeserving people? The answer is, Concern for his reputation. God acted for the sake of his name. So I'm beginning here to show you that in instance after instance in the Bible, God was motivated by a passion for the glory of God. The Exodus. Let's continue that into Psalms. This is still the Exodus. Psalm 106 both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, was before the Exodus, did not consider thy wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of thy steadfast love, but rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them. Well, now here's salvation. Start to get this, because we're going to see this again and again. Here is salvation of a rebellious, undeserving people. They rebelled against me, yet he saved them. So the question becomes, why? On what basis? For his namesake. 
that he might make known his mighty power. Salvation comes to his people who are rebellious because God has a passion for his name and the making known of his mighty power. God's commitment to the glory of God is the foundation of our salvation. You think that's a fair restatement of that sentence? He saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. The goal of God in saving is the glory of God. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, you're saying this takes priority over John 3.16. John 3.16. Does it take priority over John 3.16? Let me try to think. No. Does the, does the commitment to the glory of God, how does it relate to God so loved the world? I'm trying to think if this is the best place to answer that question. Because I fully intend to address that question. Let me just think a minute. Whether I want what, well, I'm, I'm not worried about you. I'm just worried about me here. And whether whether um, this is the right place to do it. Um, let me let me give you the short version now, and then we'll see it unpacked. Um, I'll get back to this text in a minute. How do the love of God? How does the love of God for the world and the love of God for God? Relate to each other. Now, if you ask me what's prior, I will say God's commitment to God is prior and is the foundation of his love to man. However, I want us to understand the meaning of the love of God for us in a way that the two are not in any way at odds with each other. And they're not at odds with each other for this reason. The most loving thing that God can do for you is to give you the joy of joining God in making much of God. That's the short answer. It might need a little explanation. The best, most loving thing that God can do for any human being is to come to them and to say to them, in spite of the fact that you are a sinner deserving of hell, I have found a way and will always find a way to enable you to have an eternity of infinite joy joining me in making much of me. Now, that's very different from the way the world understands being loved. The world today, and it infects all of evangelicalism, insists on defining love as that attitude towards me which makes much of me. And the whole doctrine of self-esteem has been created to buttress it. So the world would say, I am not truly loved unless you enhance my esteem of me. And I say, the Bible says, 
You are not truly loved unless somebody helps you esteem God or helps you delight yourself infinitely and abundantly in making much of God. So God makes much of God in everything he does. That's what I'm trying to show you here. God for his namesake and for the display of his mighty power does this. Now, what what is loving toward man? What is loving towards man is to come to man and say, what would make you infinitely healthy and infinitely happy and infinitely satisfied forever? And the answer is knowing and loving and enjoying and being conformed to God. So, God so loved the world means God has undertaken in the death of Jesus to find a way to enable sinners to enjoy glorifying God forever. Now, I'm way ahead of myself here because I'm coming to that in the New Testament. I've got about, you know, 20 or 30 minutes on Old Testament, and then I'm going to go right to the cross as soon as we get to the New Testament. But this is really, I mean, now you've got it. Now you, now you see uh, some of the radical implications of this. Not just for missions, but for rearing your kids, public education, psychology, counseling, preaching. Everything is affected by the centrality of God in the mind and heart of God. Everything. Well, close parenthesis, we'll be back. This puts it even more starkly. Because I, I, I'm glad you asked it because... People are offended by these texts, especially the way I talk about them. And I try to make them offensive because, frankly, I don't think people see what they see until you carve the traditional junk off the point of the arrow. It just goes pink when it's, in fact, an incredibly powerful arrow. And so I'm just kind of, you've got to let this thing in, folks. You've got to let this thing in because we are an infected evangelicalism with a man-centered worldly mindset. We are through and through. And therefore, these texts are very offensive. He saved them for his name's sake. Well, we got a megalomaniac in heaven, you know, ego-centered God. How can that be love? Those are the kinds of things I get all over the country. And I want them. I want them. I try to get them. I make it offensive as I can, and then, with your kind of question being asked, we can suddenly say, maybe I've never even known what the love of God is. I've only made much of God because he makes much of me. And and people shake, people cry. I had a young woman come up last Sunday and took my hand after I had made a case for the deadness and blindness and inability of the human heart to see the Bible, and our text was, uh, was uh, uh, Psalm 119.18, Open thou my eyes that I may behold. And I was arguing, you can't see, and only if God comes to you. And with trembling and tears running down her face, she said, I want so bad to see. I want to be a Christian so bad. I don't think I've understood this at all. And... We closed with Jesus. She came back on Wednesday night. She'd not been in church for 
years and years. And it taught me, this little thing, it taught me. Preaching human inability. Inability. Moral inability to love God, trust God, see God. And the radical, utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our heart does not destroy evangelism. It saves sinners if you present the whole thing. Because two people professed faith last Sunday under that sermon. Blew me away. I thought, praise God, we begin the new year with two people professing faith. I don't get nearly enough professions of faith to make me happy. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, there's a controversial word, but... Sorry, this is, can't do everything in one night. You can ask me that later when we have the question and answer time. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots. That, have you ever asked yourself, why ten plagues? I mean, make this short work. Do the, do the number ten first. Why the flies, the gnats, the dust, blood? Here's the provocative reason. God's a show off. No offense, Lord. God's a show off. Meaning, He has something to show off here. And He means to drag it out. That he might make known his mighty power. He meant for these stories to be written down so that Israel would never forget this. They would tell these stories to their children generation after generation after generation. The frogs, the gnats. God controls gnats. God controls frogs. God controls water. God controls Everything. He can make it dark. He can make it cold. He can make it. God wants to be known as a very powerful God. And he wants to get glory over this rascal, Pharaoh. At Sinai, a few months later, God gave a law to his people. What's at the heart of this law? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the water underneath, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I want to focus on this for a minute. What does jealousy mean? God is jealous. There is good jealousy and bad jealousy. There is healthy, right jealousy. And there is sick jealousy. A sick jealousy, I, I, I do very little now, but I used to do a lot. I just did a couple of hours of premarital counseling a few weeks ago for John and Leslie, who will get married next Saturday. And uh, I asked them, and I've always asked questions like this. Um, how do you feel when instead of coming to your house, Leslie, at night, John plays basketball with the guys. How do you feel about that inside when he makes a choice like that? And what I'm fishing for here is an unhealthy need always to be together. 
I'm, I'm looking to see if there's dysfunction in the emotional dependence here on these two. They need to bring to this relationship some good, strong, healthy independence. So that would be sick if she said, I hate it. I want him to be with me. He ought to be with me. Whoa, 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 whoa. He should not always be with you. But a healthy jealousy is if she saw him kissing another girl. She should get very angry. She should take him by the scruff of the neck and say, what was that? And that's what God does when we love the world. James says, you have not because you ask not. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you not know that he jealously yearns over the spirit that he placed within you? What does it mean when he calls the church adulteresses? Because they ask him for something to spend it on their passions. You see the picture in his mind? Here's a wife. That's the church or at least a professing church. Here's the husband in the bedroom. Very attractive. Available. Here's a paramour at the end of the hall wanting sex with the wife. She looks at her husband. She looks down the hall. This paramour requires 50 bucks. She walks into her husband's room, this is prayer, and says, Oh, husband, I pray that you would give me $50 so that she can go have sex down the hall. That's what's in James' mind. Adulteresses, do you not realize that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The jealousy of God is a signal That he is passionate for your affection, satisfaction, joy in him alone. Right? Which means he esteems his glory as satisfying to you. And if you go out after anything else, you're an adulterer or an adulteress. So his glory is highlighted in his saying, I'm enough. I'm enough for you. Look at me alone. Worship me, delight in me, be satisfied with me. In the wilderness, these people, having received a good law and been rescued by God, were so rebellious. They murmured again and again and again. Now, why didn't God wipe them out? Here's the reason. Ezekiel 20. The children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes. They were were not careful to observe my ordinances, by whose observance men shall live. They profane my Sabbaths. Then I thought I'll pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name. That it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. He was concerned for his reputation and for the sake of his name. 
That's why he didn't punish them, wipe them out in the wilderness. Skip that other text. The conquest of Canaan. Let's just take this text in 2 Samuel. They move through the wilderness, 40 years of wandering, get ready to to take over the land. What other people, what other nation on earth is like thy people Israel, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and terrible things by driving out before the people a nation and its gods. So God was making himself a name when he drove out the nations before Israel in the land of Canaan. This text is wonderful. This is so full of hope for people. You're divorced, for example, or you have made a wreck of your life or somebody has made a wreck of it for you. Listen to this. You remember now that um, Israel, after a period of judges, became antsy for a king so that they could be like the nations. This is very displeasing to the Lord. And uh, they cried out and Samuel, God said to Samuel, they're rejecting you, not me. Go ahead and give them a king. All the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. Because now they've heard from God that this has been very offensive to him that they've asked for a king and now they have Saul. For we have added to all of our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So it's done. God has conceded. Give him a king. And in fact, marvel of marvel about his sovereignty, he's willing to work with that concept the rest of history. And David becomes the paradigm of the son of David, who is Jesus, who is now king of kings and lord of lords. And there wasn't supposed to be a king in Israel, except God. Well, God finally got it that way. There will be no king but God, namely his son Jesus. But he went this roundabout way through their sinful desire for a king. Samuel said to the people, fear not, you have done all this evil. Now, stop right there. That's gospel. You see that little sentence? Fear not, you have done all this evil. There's something wrong with that picture. It's supposed to say, fear, you have done all that evil. That's what it's supposed to say. Fear, you have done all that evil. Evil should make us fear God. And when we do right, we shouldn't be afraid. When we do wrong, we should be afraid. So this is strange. Fear not, you have done all that evil. So we've got gospel here, folks. This is undeserved blessing. Fear not, yet do not turn away from following the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart. So here's your future agenda. Do not turn aside after vain things which cannot profit or save, for they are vain. For, now here's the ground for that gospel. For the Lord will not cast away his people. Why? For his great name's sake. So God comes to these sinning people. 
And instead of destroying them and saying, you want another person for a king? You can have your king. See you later. I'll raise up from stones, children of Abraham, and we'll start over again. And instead of saying that, which he could have, he would have been just and right and glorious to do it that way. He doesn't do it that way. He, he tolerates it. He passes over it. He forgives it. What's the motive? You could say, God so loved the world. That's not what this text says. There are texts that say that, and we'll get to that. We have already gotten to it, but we'll get to it again. This text says he loves his name. He really loves his name. He is passionate about his glory. And that's why he does not cast away these rebellious people. They are named by him. Psalm 2511 shows us how to pray this way. David praying, for thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. You pray that way? The New Testament version of that is... For Jesus' sake. Please teach your children and know for yourself that at the end of your prayer, in Jesus' name, amen, is not a throwaway phrase. I've had four teenage boys and now I've got a little two-year-old, Talitha. And as I have taught them all to pray, we've had family prayer day after day for 25 years or so. I insist they say those words early on. In Jesus' name or in your name or in Christ's name or for Christ's sake. I don't, the very exact wording is not important. And when they start to end their prayers, God bless Carson, help him, Shelly, be well, and may football go okay tomorrow and help him do well in geometry in Jesus' name. Amen. At, at the end of that time, I'll say to, let's say, Abraham, I'll say to Abraham, Abraham, you didn't sound like you meant that last phrase. What last phrase? Well, in Jesus' name, amen. You mean that? What do you mean? In Jesus' name, amen. Kind of a period. That means that I don't deserve any answer to prayer. Do I? John Piper deserves to be punished every day of his life. I'm a sinner. I have never earned anything from God. Never. I deserve hell left to myself. Christ undertook on the cross to purchase everything good that comes to me, including the rising of the sun tomorrow morning. That mercy that I do not deserve is purchased for me by Jesus. Therefore, if I'm going to ask God to be nice to me, whose who's right am I coming in? Whose name, whose value, whose worth, whose purchase? And the answer is not mine, but Jesus. Now, Jesus hadn't come. When this psalm was written, they looked only to God's name. They just said, Lord, I don't know why you'd pardon me. 
I know you've got this sacrificial system, and but I know deep down inside of me that the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sin. And so you're going to do something or you have done something. I don't get it. But for your namesake, for your glory, not for me, forgive me. That's the way they prayed before the cross. And lead me in paths of righteousness for thy name's sake. I'm going to skip the temple. And deliverance in time. Go to the exile. Here they are now. Hundreds of years later. God being patient with them through a divided kingdom. One king after the other being an absolute jerk. An idolater. And and finally he says, all right, enough is enough. And the northern kingdom is sold into slavery among the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom a few hundred years later is sold to the Babylonians. And they are out of there. Exile. So here they are. Finally, they're punished. They're sent away from the promised land. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. I think these verses right here, Isaiah 48, 9 to 11, are the most God-centered verses in the Bible. At least the most densely God-centered. Why is he not going to punish them, instead draw them back and save them? I think there's six of these. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. One, two, three, four, five, six. Boom, boom. You can't miss the message. Why is he deferring his anger? That is, why is he being merciful? Answer, he's committed to his name. God is committed to God. Ezekiel 36 says it another way. Written to the same situation of exile. Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake. You know, there you have the rug pulled out from under all the contemporary man-centered stuff that looks at the cross or looks at the Imago Dei, the image of God, and puts the thumbs under our armpits and say, it's all an echo of my excellence. I'm a diamond in the rough. I feel good about me. And that's what the love of God is all about. I'm offending some of you. Because that may be your whole paradigm of people helping. I don't think it's a good one. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. He's going to save them. This is salvation. He's not punishing here. He's rescuing. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned. You should be on your face, not feeling so hot about the fact that you are being rescued, but the fact that you don't deserve to be rescued. You have profaned me among the nations which you came, 
And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord, when you when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. It is not for your sake that I will act, says the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed. Be confounded for your sin. That's about as non-20th century as you can get. That's about as non-American and non-evangelical as you can get. Because people will just say, oh man, you preach that and you will destroy people's self-esteem. And they'll walk out feeling like worms and have no power to love anybody. Because if you don't feel good about yourself, you can't love others. Something wrong here. Something profoundly Wrong. You know what love your neighbor as yourself really means? It means become a Christian hedonist. Really love yourself. Which means find God satisfying. Don't settle for anything less than knowing and loving and delighting in and being satisfied with the ultimately satisfying, namely God. Be radically hedonistic. That's what self-love is. This is what Jesus told us to be. Okay, let's go to the New Testament. The life and ministry of Jesus. Why did he come? Now we're getting close to John 3.16. Why did he come? Well, he came because God so loved the world that he sent. Let's put alongside that John 17.4. Jesus says to the Father... I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Jesus came to glorify the Father. John seven eighteen. He who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of him who sent him. That's the, the Father. The Son seeking the glory of the Father. And in his humanity, identifying himself with us in the way we should live, we should live to the glory of the Father. That person is true, and in him there's no falsehood. Now here comes as close as any to answering the question about how the mercy of God and the glory of God relate. Romans 15, 8 and 9. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That means he became a Jew. He became a messianic king among Jews to show God's truthfulness. So that's his motive. To show his truthfulness. That is, he's a promise keeper. I'm here to be the amen and yes to all the promises of God and to vindicate his truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So his coming is a very Godward orientation. And in order that the Gentiles, that's us, first Jews, then Gentiles. In order that Cambridge Gentiles might Glorify God for his mercy. Now, if you want just a phrase for missions, what's the goal of missions? The goal of missions is that the nations might glorify God for his mercy. So which is penultimate and which is ultimate? And I would say... He comes with mercy to rescue sinners among all the peoples. He does it 
ultimately that he might be seen to be great. And so the ultimate thing is not sinners. The ultimate thing is not mercy. The ultimate thing is glory. And mercy is what he uses to get people into a position where they can see it and love it and be satisfied by it. And we call that salvation. Of course, if if you only think of salvation as escape from hell and the forgiveness of sins, this might not make any sense. But if salvation includes, essentially, the eternal satisfaction of your cavernous longings in God forever, then it makes sense. When mercy comes, it takes godless people and enables them through the forgiveness of sins to start enjoying the glory of God and thus magnifying the glory of God forever. So I do say, in answer to your question, that mercy and love are penultimate or a means to the glory of God. And the glory of God, which includes the glory of his love, but more, is ultimate. Now we're right at the center of the Bible with the death of Jesus. Two texts. I think I'll just look at the bottom one. You can look at the top one in Gethsemane for yourself, John 12, 27 to 28. I believe this paragraph right here is the most important paragraph in the Bible. That's John Piper's judgment. No authority for saying that. But that's my judgment. Romans 3, 23 to 26, I believe, is the most important paragraph in the Bible. It means you ought to know it, lean on it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have a tract at Bethlehem called Quest for Joy, which is an attempt to put into six statements the gospel so that over lunch at work, if somebody's willing to let you give your philosophy of life and share the gospel, you have a concrete, simple way of doing it. But it takes us six steps to do it. And step number one is God created you for his glory. And step number two is, you haven't lived for his glory, and neither have I. That's easy to say to anybody and make it understandable. Every person in the world knows that that's, that's the case. They have not lived for the glory of God. And you can quote them Isaiah 43:7 that they were created for his glory, and you can talk about the mirror and all kinds of ways to do it. Step three is, therefore, um, no, step three... Step one is God created us for his glory. Step two is we ought to live for his glory. And step three is none of us has lived for his glory. We have all sinned. And the reason I start with the first two is so that this word right here makes sense in Romans 3.23. If you start sharing the gospel without bringing the glory of God in early, this crucial text in the gospel, we all know this by heart, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it's not going to make any sense. Sin is the failure to glorify God. That's what sin is. And if you say just something like sin is disobedience to the law of God, you are setting them up for some massive legal understanding of this relationship. God's got a law. You didn't obey it. Start obeying it. Go to heaven or something like that. Or Jesus obeyed it. 
and now trust Jesus and you go to heaven. And there you've got a bunch of antinomians who think the law has nothing to do with them. I mean, all kinds of things go wrong the first 30 minutes of a person's exposure to the gospel. We had an elder the other day who says, we're thinking about a big project at Bethlehem, he says, you know, most of the problems in a business project come from what you do in the first 30 minutes of the planning. Same thing with the sharing of the gospel. So, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Means sin is a failure to see and enjoy and delight in and reflect the glory of God. But they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation or propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now here it comes. This was to show... This putting forward in death and blood, this gruesome death of Jesus, was to show God's righteousness. Why was the righteousness of God in jeopardy? Why did it need to be demonstrated? Why did God need to do such a drastic thing as to kill his son, so that his righteousness would be vindicated. And the answer is given in the next phrase. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Like what? Like David. Adultery, murder. Nathan comes to him and says, you are the man. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan, stand and wonder, said, the Lord has taken away your sin. Second Samuel 12. Just like that. You can't do that. You can't do that. No judge can do that. You got judges? This is county seat. Are there judges in Cambridge? You have to go somewhere else to see a judge. You got judges. Okay. So a judge in Cambridge uh, stands, has a Rapist and a murderer in one person standing before him. The evidence is clear. He's guilty. He knows he's guilty. He says he's guilty, but he's sorry. And the judge says, okay, you can go. Thanks for your apology. That judge would not survive. Neither should God. He should be off the bench of the universe. That's the problem of the cross. God is wicked to forgive sinners. It says plainly in Proverbs, the one who justifies the wicked joins them in their wickedness. And the whole point of the book of Romans is God justifies the ungodly. We got a major problem here, folks. God's goodness to you is the biggest problem in the universe, not your suffering. Your suffering is wholly to be expected and deserved. You're getting far less than what you deserve, no matter what suffering you're going through right now. Everybody in this room deserves to go to hell. If you only suffer and die from cancer, no suffering at all compared to what you deserve. The real problem in this room right now is that we're warm. And the mega problem is that we're forgiven by faith alone. That's a major problem. And the solution to the problem is the execution of the Son of God. So the Son is mainly given 
to vindicate the justice of the judge who let sinners go free. Just because they apologize and put their faith in Jesus. That's a God-centered cross. And oh, how different from what the cross is done with or made of in our day. Read and weep most books on the cross today. We're almost done here, and I'll open it up for questions. The Christian life, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Uh, Let him who renders service render it in the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. Everything in the Christian life, when you go home tonight, if you get a snack when you go home, these water bottles, wonderful snacks over there, were you doing it to the glory of God as you ate? Hope so. If you say, how do you eat crackers to the glory of God? How do you drink sparkling water to the glory of God? If you don't know the answer to that question, you can't obey this. That's not quite accurate. You can't obey it, but you won't understand how you're obeying it. And therefore, your obedience will be in jeopardy if something confusing happens in your life, like the water turns out to be poison. There are a lot of ways to drink orange juice to the glory of God. I wrote an article one time, How to Drink Orange Juice to the Glory of God, just to answer that question for my my people. It starts with gratitude. Thank you. You made the orange. Thank you for the truck that got it here. Thank you for the wonderful pasteurizing procedures that keep it from being infecting in my life. Thank you for refrigeration. That's all from you. I was giving these illustrations to my boys as we sat around the breakfast table. and The context in 1 Corinthians is love. And I said, one of the ways you drink orange juice to the glory of God is asking Barnabas if he wants the full cup and you get the half cup. And if you pour the full cup for him and you take the half cup, you drink orange juice more to the glory of God than if you poured the full cup and gave him the half cup. There are all kinds of ways to think this through, but you need to do that. Last one, second coming. Why is Jesus coming back? Here's one answer. Second Thessalonians 1, nine, They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. These are people who have been unbelievers and resisted the gospel. When he comes on that day, why? To be glorified in his saints... And to be marveled at in all who have believed. Now, the sum of the matter is God is very self-centered. Jesus is coming back to be glorified in the saints. To get glory. Glorify me. Glorify me. And to be marveled at. Marvel at me. Marvel at me. If you acted like that, you'd be arrogant and unloving. Why is it loving for Christ to act like that? It's very simple. He is infinitely glorious, and you aren't. So if you want to love somebody, you must point them to him. If he wants to love somebody, he must point them to him. Is that hard to understand? God is the only being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue. And the way we imitate him in that is not by self-exaltation, but God-exaltation. If God exalts God in your life, you should exalt God in others' lives. Adam and Eve got this exactly wrong. Because Satan took a half-truth and did a little dingy on it. 
God created them in his image. And Satan comes along and says, you want to be like God? They should have said, we're already like God in the way we should be. But he sowed the seed of doubt that he was withholding something good from them. They started to distrust him. And what he meant was, you can be like God by getting people to praise you like God gets people to praise him. By relying on your standards of wisdom and goodness the way God relies on his standards of wisdom and goodness. See how plausible that is? God-likeness is independence. God-likeness is I can do it my own way. God says that. God is independent. God does it his own way. God consults with nobody. Who has ever given a gift to him that he should be repaid? Who has ever been the counselor of the Lord? Nobody. So if you want to be like God, be independent. Wrong. That's satanic. So to say that Christ is coming to be glorified is not to say you should go out of here tonight to be glorified. Because that would be massively cruel to others by getting attention for yourself instead of God. God is the only one that can satisfy people. God is the only one that can save and bless and delight people. So the more you live to get attraction for you, the more cruel you are and ungodlike you are. But the more you live to get attraction and attention and delight and satisfaction in God to show his supremacy and get people toward God, the more loving you are. And God has to be that way too. Of course it sounds like a megalomaniac. Of course it sounds like he's self-centered. Of course it sounds like he's selfish. But that's only because we haven't thought through of what it means to be God. He's stuck with it. He's stuck with being perfect. He's stuck with being beautiful. He's stuck with being infinitely satisfying. You're not. You can give that up tonight. Give it back to him. And therefore, if he loves you, he's coming tonight and saying, no matter what it sounds like in your mind, the only way I can love you is to say, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. That's the only way he can love you. If he were to say, I don't do that, I'm really, I'm really not. If, if God were to be humble, he would be an idolater. Well, maybe that's enough to stir up a few questions. This is all about missions because the point of missions is to exalt this God with him. If this is his goal, if all these texts are right, if my angle on these texts, if my understanding of these texts is right, the passion of God for Cambridge and the passion of God for Cambodia is that his name be known and loved, his reputation be advanced, and his satisfying beauty through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross be embraced by people and that he be glorified by them forever. So we want to join him in it, give our whole lives to this. We've got about 10 minutes for questions. I'm told that I'm supposed to get done at 9. So shoot away anything at all, either about what I've said or about what I haven't said or problems with what I've said or clarifications or anything. Go ahead. Let's try to fill these minutes up with something useful here. Well, I haven't heard. Could, could you all hear that question? Do I need to repeat it? I, ha, I haven't heard a hurting person. Um, this man says he wants to say to him, someday you'll be able to look into the mirror and say that God has created a unique person 
never anybody like you before, never anybody any, never will there any be anybody like you after you. Now, what I haven't heard is what the problem is. What, what's their problem? Okay. Now I've got the problem. And the way you just defined the problem calls for a massive grace solution. I don't deserve your help. Get rid of me. I'm, I've botched everything. i not worth the time of being here, etc. I would not say to them, someday you'll be able to look into the mirror and appreciate who you are. I do not accept their analysis of what the problem is. The problem is they don't trust grace. The problem is they haven't gotten a handle on justification of the ungodly by faith alone. And if we say the obstacle to getting a hold of it is that they have too low a view of themselves, we're undercutting the very doctrine in trying to get them to accept it, it seems to me. The doctrine says, get that analysis out of your head. That's irrelevant. In fact, I think there's something incredibly liberating about telling a person like that, you know what? You probably don't have a clue how bad you are. Well, the the alternative is to not assume that health must be based bottom line on self-esteem. See, it sounds like you're operating with the paradigm that says, unless I can find a Christian way to help them feel good about themselves, I'll never bring them to health. At least, I don't know if you're doing that, but that's the way a lot of people function. I I sat in one seminar, for example, where the syllogism is sort of drawn, God loves you, therefore you are somebody, therefore be healthy and feel good and strong and resourceful and and functional in society. Now, I'm saying the middle premise is not necessary. I think you can go straight from God loves you to therefore rejoice in God. If we believe with all of our heart that true health, true joy, true liberty, true satisfaction comes from seeing and knowing and delighting in God rather than making that love an echo of my excellence or my worth. He really desperately wants probably to be made to feel good about himself. I'm not going to help him. I'm going to say, look, if I join you in this quest to help you feel like somebody, and I, I know that in Christ we have worth. You are of more value than the sparrows, Jesus said. But the reason he said it is because sparrows cannot glorify God consciously. We have the capacity to reflect and honor and glorify the Lord. So I'm going to go straight to the issue of what the image of God is about in him. Namely, you know what? The glorious thing, in the, the, the most glorious news in the world is that God comes to people like you. Absolutely broken, helpless failures who know you are blowing it over and over again, and he makes the foundation of your health and salvation something utterly different than you, the cross. But you can't go there and say, ah, and therefore the cross shows that we are diamonds in the rough and therefore feel good about yourself again. That's not the point. The cross is 
God moves in with his pure hands and is willing to get them dirty to love people who are broken sinners. Be loved. And probably what that guy needs is a community who will just lavish love on him. Not so that he can infer, oh, I'm lovable. See, we keep wanting to tell him the real bottom line health is lovability. When it's God's love, God's glory, God's beauty. So I'm trying to resist a people-helping approach that really goes back again and again and again at the bottom line to man and his worth and his esteem and his value. So my alternative is show him the beauties of Christ. Show him the unconditional election and regeneration and the justification by faith alone and that the whole point of it is you're not deserving of it. That's a huge Huge question, and this is this is a very good thing for us all to think about. How you do people helping in the light of God-centered biblical gospel. I personally think most of American evangelical people helping is way off base. Another question. Yeah, it is hard, and it's a it's the question that has to be asked. And uh, if you didn't ask it, somebody else would have or should have. What do you do, Piper, with verses like 2 John 3, 9 or 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, or Ezekiel 18, 33, God does not delight in the death of the wicked and a handful of others that are seemingly uh, clear in their teaching that God's will is frustrated. Well, there are a lot of other texts that would imply that. Um, three minutes, five minutes. Oh, piece of cake, five minutes. Um, yes, I'll try to answer it in, in a few minutes because this, I mean, this is everything, isn't it, right? Um, I believe those verses. I take them at face value. I don't try to twist the words. Uh, there are ways, and they may be right even, to say that in Second Peter 3, 9, a God is not willing that any of you should perish, and that you refers to the elect. That solves the problem right off the bat. Maybe. But let's just let you be everybody, uh, which it seems to be in First uh, Peter 2, 4. I mean, First Timothy 2, 4. Um, God desires all, meaning every human being on the face of the earth, to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And here I believe in election, unconditional election, before the foundation of the world, as to who will be saved and not saved. So you have God being uh, desirous that some be saved and saving them, and desirous that all be saved and they're not being saved. So what do you do with this? My answer is that God really does have a genuine, authentic desire for all to be saved, and he does not bring that desire to consummation in action for higher and holier purposes than that desire. Like a judge who has his son before him guilty of a crime, and he doesn't want to send that son to prison, but he does send him to prison because of higher commitment. So I believe that there can be in God two wills. A will for all to be saved and a will to save only the elect. 
Now, if that sounds like schizophrenia to you, Calvinistic schizophrenia, let me just point out that the choice of the Arminian is exactly the same. Maybe I'm using the word Arminian and Calvinist, and you don't even know what those words mean, but the, the free will person who believes that we have the power native in ourselves to frustrate the plans of God. They would look at this verse and say, God desires all men to be saved. And I would point out, but he doesn't save them all, right? Yes. Why? Answer, because he wants them to have free will so that there can be a genuine love relationship with him. So you're saying he desires them all to be saved, but he has a higher commitment to something else than their salvation. Namely, that they have free will. I think they would have to say, well, I wouldn't put it like that, but I suppose that's what he has. So both an Arminian and a Calvinist, a sovereignty person and a free will person, come to this text, and they have the very same problem. He wills all to be saved. All are not saved. Why are they not all saved? Because this will is overridden by another will. Now, where the disagreement comes is what this will is. This higher will The Arminian says the higher will is that we have free will. And the Calvinist says the higher will is that God be sovereign and glorify himself in the revelation of wrath and mercy. And the question becomes, which is biblical? I don't find free will in the Bible. And so I don't believe in it. That's simple to me. Go ahead. I can't hear you. The question is, when does God forgive our sin? At the cross or when we... Profess faith. Is that right? Okay. Okay. That That's a very difficult question because I think the Bible speaks in both ways in this sense that is this related? Are you, do you have in your head a, a connection between that question and this question or is this separate in your head? I just want to know. you. Okay. I, I thought, whoa, this is this is an interesting thing. I'm, I'm really I want to know how this is connected, but I'll try to answer that because I don't know if I got that other one settled. And it's and it's nine. I think at the cross, the full provision and covering was provided for sin, the full payment, the full atonement, the full propitiation, the covering, the removal of wrath was bought and provided for. Then, when we are justified by faith, and I think faith includes repentance or confession, that is made over or applied to us. Now, God saw us in that cross from the beginning, but it seems as though he applies it effectively to us at the moment of our conversion. And the reason I I stress that is because it's clear that Redemption is in the blood, Ephesians 1, 7, but we are justified by faith, and that comes when we have faith, and in Romans 4, justification is made synonymous by quoting Psalm 32 with forgiveness. Now, do you want to follow up on that? That's, so my answer is, uh, in one sense, we're forgiven at the cross, in that the provision is wholly provided there. In another sense, we're provided forgiven at the moment of confession and faith because that provision is applied to us at that point. It's time to stop. 
and I need to do that to honor your commitments. But I want to just make sure that that other huge question didn't get handled too too cavalierly. That's a huge issue. That's a hard issue. I don't assume that you just kind of easily say, oh, fine, I'll be Calvinist, or fine, I'll be Arminius. I mean, these are, these are things you weep over. I wept in seminary over these issues. I screamed at professors, Jim Morgan, over these issues. I put my face in my hands in the fall of 1968 and cried my eyes out over these issues. I did not come easily to these things. I was a born Arminian. I held a pen in the face of my systematic theology teacher in the hallway of Fuller Seminary. I went like this. I said, you see this, Jim Morgan? I dropped it! I was a fighting Arminian. Until I read Romans 9. Well, we got to stop. Let me pray, and I think your assignment is on the board over there, and and we'll go. Lord, it, it may feel to many that this has been more like a theology class than a missions class tonight. But oh, how I pray that we would see that your passion to spread your glory rooted in your Self-sufficiency is the driving motor of why you created the world, why you redeemed through Christ, why you're calling missionaries today, why you're overcoming obstacles, because you mean to gather worshipers and God-glorifiers from all the peoples. And so establish us in this, I pray, and bless this class. I pray that you would send forth laborers from this class, Lord, and make everybody in this class either a sender or a goer, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.